thing I can stand. Uh, this is Robert Mitchell, episode 36 of High Tide in the Dreamtime. I think that this episode is going to be called Nighttime Consciousness. And uh, it's I'm actually making this at nighttime. I haven't made too many nighttime podcasts. And I've tried to make this podcast three or four times and it hasn't worked. So I think tonight's the night. Um... That it's going to work. Uh, I have a couple funny stories about, I guess I have a funny sting story, um, which was when in 2000, I was living in the Four Seasons in Toronto for about two months. And it was summer and my son was probably about six or seven months old. And the... Four Seasons in Toronto at that time, it was like every movie that was in production, the people were staying in the Four Seasons, and then every uh, rock band that came through town was staying at the Four Seasons too. So you'd get in the elevator, and there would be Jennifer Lopez, and then you'd get in another elevator, and it'd be Mike Myers, and then you'd be reading Rolling Stone, where I'd be reading Rolling Stone, and they'd be talking about Kiss. Is this their last tour? And Kiss would be saying, I don't know, it might be our last tour. It might just be Jews in space. And then you'd go into the elevator, and Kiss would be in the elevator. And I remember going, is it the last tour, or is it just Jews in space? And them all laughing and saying, it's Jews in space. And it was like this every day. It was pretty interesting. And then one day I went for a walk late at night, had dinner, had uh, my son and his mom with me and we went to dinner and we came back into the uh, lobby and Sting was standing there waiting for an elevator and he looked pretty good. You know, I don't know how old he was then, maybe he was 45 or something, but he looked really good. He looked like his in his 20s. He was like kind of hiking clothes and hiking shoes. And he had a guy with him who I assumed was his uh, yoga teacher. And we got into the elevator together because it was the one elevator. And he looked at my son. And my son at the time was like six or seven months old. He had this big moony face. He just sat up in the stroller for the first time that night. Obviously, it was a poor tent. A visitation from Sting was coming. So he sat up and he had this pashmina around his head. This kind of like, it was kind of like this red pashmina. And it was wrapped around his face and he had this big moony face. And Sting looked at him and he said, you know, I have six kids. 
I think that's what he said. I don't know how many kids he had, but I, th- I seem to remember he said, you know, I have six kids. And I kind of like looked at him and I kind of wanted to say, how would I know that? <laughs> that guy's like, I don't know how many kids he has, but he looks at me and he goes, you know, I have six kids. But he said it with such conviction, like, of course I knew that he had six kids. Uh, and I was like, okay. And he goes, but none of them look like that. <laughs> and then he got off the elevator and I kind of looked at my kid's mom and she looked at me and we just started laughing. Um, but Andy, who played the guitar on that intro, I knew as a friend for a while, really cool guy, amazing musician, big Zen student, um, and had the humility of being a guitar teacher in the Valley, uh, in Los Angeles (laughs) after he'd like left London and hadn't succeeded at really being a musician. And, um, before he was in the police, he was a guitar teacher in the Valley in Los Angeles. And I really enjoyed Andy for a few years and did some crazy stuff, like fun stuff with him. And, um, one of the fun things I did was I used to be famous in Los Angeles for my, um, 4th of July firework shows. And I used to go down to Chinatown and buy these illegal fireworks, but they were like the kind of fireworks you would find going off at Dodger Stadium. They would go like 200 feet in the air. They'd be blue and green and red and like, you couldn't believe it. They were super illegal. Um, and this was, you know, I, I used to set them off in Venice. Um, on the concrete. My kids loved it because we had this area I'd set them off over this concrete standard and then I'd run across the street and hide in my house so the police didn't see where they were coming from. But as the kids grew older, we used to go to people's houses on the 4th of July and I'd be like, oh, you know, I have some fireworks and I'd uh, set them off and they couldn't believe it and first they'd be amazed and then they'd get pretty sure I was going to burn down their house and Andy had a really nice house in Santa Monica Canyon and he was pretty sure I was going to burn his house down. And I was like, no man, I do this this every year. Don't worry about it. And I thought, wow, you know, this is free. This is the best uh, free fireworks show in Los Angeles. And I brought it to your house for the 4th of July, but he didn't really think it was that funny because I think he thought I was going to burn down his 1920s Tudor estate. Um, but I didn't, so he had no reason to be upset, but that brings me to tonight's episode because tonight's episode is about nighttime consciousness. And when I say nighttime consciousness, I want it to be considered symbolically. Because there is the illumination of the sun. There is the illumination of the egoic consciousness. That the ego shines light on what it encounters and what reinforces its ideas about itself. Who I am. What I'm good at. What I'm not good at. What I like what I don't like, what I'm brave about, 
what I'm fearful about, what I believe about myself, and what I don't believe about myself. And we emerge, all of us in our lives, into this daytime consciousness. These are my parents, these are my friends, this is where I live, this is my nationality, this is my religion, this is my moral code, this is my understanding of reality. And every morning I wake up and it's back. It was there and I fell asleep and it was gone and now it's back. I'm counting on that. And I've used this, um, I've used this quote before because Jung said that death surrounds life like night surrounds the day. And I think that what's important is to be able to see that our daytime consciousness, our egoic consciousness is just a part of our consciousness. It's like a flashlight shined into the entirety of us that just illuminates certain things. And there are a lot of things in each of our consciousness outside the scope of this illumination. And death is one of the ways that we realize this. Is that the things that have supported us, the things that have been our identity, our body, our brain, um, they no longer can support us anymore at the end of our life. And we're gonna lose the capacity to create that daytime consciousness and we're going to slip back into the eternal primordial night. And what's really interesting about that is we do this every night. Every night you get tired, every night your day ends, Every, every night you have to put your phone down eventually to stop reading about the election, stop reading about conflict. You have to stop reading about your favorite football team. And you're left only with your descent, with your I can no longer support that daytime consciousness, that consciousness of identity, that consciousness of habit, that consciousness that I'm pushing all the time and trying to make sense of and trying to interact with other people in and trying to orient myself towards uh, the outside world, it's politics, it's, it's economy, it's relationships, it's struggles, it's victories, my place in it. And you're going to descend. Exhaustion is going to draw you out of that. Like one day, your energy will run out and your body won't have the vitality to keep going anymore. Well, we all get a little mini version of that every day, whether we sort of like it or not. And, you know, one of the things that people have in this culture is sleep deprivation because they're so attached to their daytime consciousness. 
They're so attached to the illuminating uh, capacities of news and credit reports and bank accounts and their relationship to other people and their evaluation of themselves in relationship to other people and the culture. And as you descend, as you can't hold on to that anymore, and more and more and more and more, people try and hold on to that. Nighttime lighting has made that uh, a catastrophic part of all our lives because we no longer follow the natural rhythms of night and day. I don't know if you've ever been camping, you know that you fall asleep when you're camping pretty much when the, soon after the sun goes down because there's not a lot to do. <laughs> Unless you have Wi-Fi access. You just have the darkness. You have your vulnerability. You have your lack of sight. Your senses become less and less useful in, in, in the dark night. Become more vulnerable. And we're all like that in our lives as well. I know I am. And one of the things that we find is that the parts of us that we've chosen to illuminate are parts that people reflect back to us, usually that they like, or usually that they want to behave a certain way, or they want to interact with a certain way. And that starts very early. But oftentimes there are parts of ourselves that this, this think of it as like a cone of light shining into the darkness where you say, this is me, this is who I am, this is my name, this is my age, this is where I'm from, this is what I believe, this is, the, the, this is where I live, this is my identity. That's been reinforced by other people as well. And there's a lot of you and of me that exists outside that illumination in the darkness outside the capacity of our senses and of our brains and of our continuity of identity and of, of, of ego consciousness. And as we descend in that, there's a lot of ways to descend into that. Meditation can descend you into that as it quiets down the narrative. Sleeping brings you out of that as you kind of let go of your physical state, of your uprightness, of your eyes being open, of your interacting with others. Uh, sex can also be a way to let go of that verbal, uh, intellectual, conceptual identity in its, in its higher aspects. And of course, psychedelics are a way that when you cut off your senses, your eyes and your ears, new and your, make your hearing about things other than just your physical environment, things begin to emerge just like they emerge in a dream. And just like they emerge in a dream, those things can be very unpredictable. 
They can be things you didn't think were true about yourself. They can be memories you didn't realize that you had. They can be parts of yourself you didn't know existed. Emotions that you had stuffed away that were never welcome. Perceptions that you had that you deny that you had. Much like in a dream where you can have really crazy characters in a dream doing really crazy things or people you know doing things that you know they'd never do in the daytime, the darkness emerges. From the darkness, information emerges. Sometimes when you dream about somebody you know and they're doing something that you wouldn't imagine that they do, you can find out that that's a part of them or it's a part of you that you're projecting on them in a dream. And sometimes in psychedelic experiences, things emerge in you that you could never imagine were a part of you. Desires, perceptions, abuse, emotions, aspirations, parts of yourself that are more powerful than you can imagine yourself being or infinitely less powerful than you see yourself. And that can be a really scary thing. Just like a nightmare can be a really scary thing. And my premise when I work with people in their dreams, and a lot of the work I do is about getting people to become aware of how they dream, to record their dreams and work with their dreams. And, you know, so many people say to me, I don't dream. And then I give them some pointers on how to become aware that they're dreaming, how to record their dreams, and then everybody starts dreaming. It's kind of like 100%, unless they're big pot smokers, because THC suppresses REM. So, when you become aware of your dreams, you become aware of these parts of yourself that are not part of your daytime identity. They're not part of the ways that you aspire to be. They're not part of the ongoing narrative from your birth about yourself that you have been carrying like a big backpack. But the same is true of psychedelic experiences. Things emerge out of the darkness out of the parts of you that haven't been illuminated by your aspirations and by your desires of who you are and your idealizations of who you are. And sometimes they're a lot better. And sometimes those parts are a lot worse. But it doesn't matter if they're better or if they're worse. What matters is welcoming them. 
into the beam, the flashlight beam of consciousness that you're always using and screening them out. And as you bring these parts in, they have a vitality. They have a vitality that is compounded by their rejection. The energy that it took not to be aware of these parts, the ways you needed to distract, one needs to distract themselves, the ways one needs to keep pushing daytime consciousness and daytime identity to keep these parts out can be really exhausting. And to know that you are these parts and have always been these parts and that you can welcome them like long lost parts of your family. Oh, I am feeling it right now talking about it and how it infuses you with a vitality and with a warmth and with an expansiveness, good or bad, liked or disliked. By shining the light of daytime consciousness on these parts, by bringing them into the light, it enervates your daytime consciousness. It illuminates your daytime consciousness. And there's a wonderful, wonderful quote by Jung. It's very Jungian tonight. Andy in the police was really into Jung. We had a lot of conversations about it. But, so I guess it's up. What Jung said, and I've said this on the podcast before, and it's not very popular, is... And it's so much about what I was talking about today. It's going to tie together the whole podcast, which is we don't become enlightened by imagining figures of light. Or he said one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by illuminating our darkness And for so many people, that darkness is terrifying. They don't ever approach it. They don't ever engage it. They don't ever allow it in because they're working so hard on their daytime consciousness. And in the darkness, there can be rejection. In the darkness, there can be trauma. In the darkness, there can be lack of empathy for the more profound parts of you. That's why they remain in the dark. They're not welcomed into your daytime consciousness. But those parts, when they're welcomed, can be very powerful and very enervating. And I was having a conversation with somebody today or yesterday about the brain and about a machine that stimulates the brain and how it can do everything that psychedelics do and because it gets these waves going. And, you know, I sort of... I didn't take issue with it, but I didn't agree with it because it's this whole technological concept that um, with technology, including kind of like internet technology or artificial intelligence, that 
you can simulate reality. Like, but that in fact, reality is this simulation created by a computer mind. You know, I think Elon Musk says that it's way off. Um, because all technologies are simulation of consciousness, of human consciousness that permeates, that is a drop in the consciousness that permeates the entire universe. And it's not brainwaves that is healing in psychedelic experiences, just like it's not brainwaves that are healing in the fruits of a really intense dream where some lost part of yourself returns because it's time to experience it. The effect of psychedelics or dreaming or a deep meditational experience or, or some kind of mystical experience is that you now incorporate that into your sense of self, which has up to that point been limited. And the stuff that's been in the darkness hasn't been part of your daytime awareness. And it hasn't been... It hasn't been um, metabolized as part of your daytime consciousness and you've been missing it. You've been missing the nutrition of it. And then when you get it, you're a different person. Your daytime consciousness is changed by it. It becomes broader. It moves out into the darkness a little bit more. Its aperture widens and incorporates more of what you are. Even though your experience up to the point that that happens didn't allow for that. But once that experience is allowed for, it's always a part of the person. It's always a part of the identity. It's always a part of the present now. And that is the power of nighttime consciousness. And that's the reason to descend into it and not to wait until the end when you don't have any choice and you go, oh, I forgot all about this. Why did I forget about this? This is rich and deep and fantastic. Oh, a lot of people have that experience. I am sure. So don't wait. Have it now. Have it today. Have it tonight. Have it tomorrow. Have it this weekend. It's nutrition. You don't have to be in the darkness of an ayahuasca ceremony where you can't see anything. And there are songs being played in a language you don't understand. <laughs> that experience is happening every night. Embrace it. Recognize it. Welcome it. Be initiated by it. Be initiated into the darkness. A lot of this is on my website at www.
goingquantum.org. There's essays on there, and I can be reached on there. And thank you for listening. I've really enjoyed this podcast a lot. It took three or four attempts to make it, and I really like how it turned out, and I hope you like it too.